0: and uh, we are going to begin a series tonight for the next four weeks on the book of Jude. Um, we're going to be going through a book of the Bible that is honestly overlooked sometimes. It is uh, probably undervalued to some degree, um you know, if you think back to the last time that you heard a sermon preached from the Book of Jude, you may not be able to find that. You'll be hard pressed to find anybody who says, "Yeah, my my life verses in Jude chapter one verse." You know, uh, it's very it's it's very unlikely that you're going to find that, and so. Um, as I was preparing for this next month, uh, I really wanted to dive into this book because we are given the Word of God, uh, not just parts of the Word of God. They are all profitable for the maturing of the saints. And so we're going to jump into this tonight. I'm very excited, as we always do. Um, tonight we're going to begin by reading the entirety of the book of Jude. Okay. Now, let me, let me come and you say, how many chapters is that? It's one chapter. Okay, it's 25 verses, and uh, we're going to read this every week together um, as we typically would do. Let's read together. The Bible says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. So contextually, Judah's writing to a church and he's saying, listen, I wanted to write to you about this. But I feel uh, led to write to you about something else because there is some not so great stuff, some not so great people who have slipped in secretly among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these God has kept in darkness bound with everlasting change for judgment on that great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own, body, own bodies, rejecting authority and heap abuse on the celestial beings. But even the Archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, he did not himself dare to condemn the devil for slander, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand and the very things they do understand by instinct as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them, for they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, wondering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these people. See, the Lord is coming with, a thousand, with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault, fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last days there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts, and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Now, Lord, as we open this precious, overlooked, often difficult to understand book of the Bible, I want to pray for the unction of your Holy Spirit here in these moments. I want to pray for the Spirit of the Lord to speak to our hearts on every level that you deem necessary. I want to pray, Father, that you will teach us Um, to be strong in the faith. I want to pray that you will teach us to be aware of false teachings and false teachers. Lead us, Father, into all truth as you promised your Holy Spirit would do for us. And so, God, we surrender our lives, ourselves, these next few moments as we walk through these scriptures. We give them to you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen. Generally speaking, there are normally two types of people when it comes to the issue of conflict or confrontation, okay? Um, You typically have uh, some people in, in a camp that are Unafraid of confrontation, some of them seek out confrontation. Some people just like to pick a fight, you know. Um, but you have some people that don't go off looking for fights, but they're not afraid. They're not afraid to have difficult conversations. They're not afraid to, you know, say difficult things, especially when they're the right things. Um, you you tend to have this type of people, especially in the world that we live today. Um, you have people that are very unafraid to call you out on things and and to uh, hit things head on. And another camp, which is where I would be, um, is the camp of people who really loathe conflict. I hate conflict with every ounce of my being. Um, Conflict, um, it it causes me to lose sleep at night. I constantly second guess myself. You know, I'm sick to my stomach. I have butterflies before I go into difficult conversations or whatever. Um, The thing is, though, is that if you're in this camp, Um, What you have to learn as an adult, especially as a Christian adult, is that although, you know, I hate confrontation, I realize that confrontation is necessary, right? In my life, from now till kingdom come, it is going to be a necessary thing that I'm going to have to engage in if not only I want to be maturing and successful for for myself, but if I want to bring others up with me, it's going to require some level of confrontation, from time to time. Now, I don't know where these two camps originate. You know, I don't know if I hate confrontation because I got beat up so much as a little kid, and these people over here were the ones beating me up, and so they're not afraid of anything. I don't know what it is or or where it comes from, but I would venture to say that a majority of Christians probably land in this camp over here. Okay now I have friends very dear friends that are are in this camp and they're not bad people they're not evil they're not the ones looking for a fight it just doesn't bother them to deal with the confrontation right but I would I would venture to say that most Christians land on this side of the table and it isn't that that we are necessarily afraid of us getting hurt oftentimes what it is is that we are afraid of hurting other people and so what the what the issue is sometimes when you land on this side of the confrontation issue is that sometimes conflict can almost be perceived as ungodly or wrong or unchristian or unchristlike or or whatever the case may be because oftentimes when we think of Christ what are his characteristics we think of Christ being you know meek and mild he's lowly in heart he's filled with compassion he wept when you know his friend died he's filled with love and so we look at Christ and we say, well, he is filled with all these things, so conflict must be, you know, you know, the opposite of Christ or, you know, whatever the case may be. But I would push back on that a little bit. And tonight, that's what I want to do. I want to push back on that a little bit. And I want to say this, that yes, Christ is all of those things. Completely and fully, he is all of those things. But he is also the same Jesus that flipped over some tables in church, okay, He is the same Jesus that in his frustration and in his anger, he sat in the corner of a temple and he methodically wove together a whip to drive people out of the temple. This is the Jesus, right? We never like to think of Jesus like he would never embarrass anybody. He would never make anybody feel bad. You haven't read the gospels this is the same Jesus that would look at the religious leaders and he would call them a brood of vipers. You understand that? That, That's pretty insulting, okay? But he would even go far beyond calling them a brood of baby snakes and he would even say that they were sons of their father, the devil. He said that their father was the devil, Right? This is this is an incredible insult that Jesus deals out. And what we learn is this is that Jesus isn't just going pick and fights. He's not looking for people walking down the street and bump, say, up oh, brood of viper. It's not Jesus. But what we find is that when Jesus is faced with conflict, he never backs down. When he is faced with a confrontation that needs to take place, he is not weak in those moments or even removed in those moments. Jesus confidently, with all of these traits, he goes and he confronts that which needs to be confronted. In the book of Jude, that's the Jesus we see represented. In the book of Jude, we see the spirit of God speaking through Jude to the church, and he's saying, listen to me, ladies and gentlemen, there is is darkness that's rising in your house, and there's no way to avoid it, there's no way around it, you must confront this head on, and I want you to confront it strong, I need you to stiffen your spines, I need you to stand for truth. I need you to contend for the faith. That's what we find when we look at the book of Jude. It makes a little more sense now why the book of Jude is so overlooked, right? Because from a worldly perspective or for those who are not really, um, uh, who are kind of, I don't mean this as an insult to anybody, but for lack of a better term, who are not mature in their faith, or are a little shallow in their faith, they only have a dimension of Jesus that is meek and mild. When the reality is that, yes, Jesus is meek and mild, but he's also strong and mighty. And he will do what's right, oftentimes just because it's right. And so tonight what we're going to do when we begin to, to unpack the book of Jude We are going to just take tonight and we are going to, I'm going to give you an overview of the book. Okay, I'm going to tell you kind of what's in the book. It's kind of like a a 30,000 foot view of what's going on. I'll give you some details, but the next three weeks is really when we're going to get into the weeds. Okay, we're going to dig in and we're going to talk, we're going to spend an entire night. Uh, talking about false teachers and what false teachings uh, are not only prominent today, but have been prominent throughout Christian history uh, and the reasons why. But uh, tonight, I just kind of want to give you, a, uh, you know, a, a broad, sweeping view of the book of Jude and, and what it's all about. Now, the, the name of the book is called Jude. Okay, The English translation is the word Jude. The Greek word, however, is, is not is not pronounced Jude. It's pronounced Eudas, okay? And the word Eudas properly translated into English is the word Judas. So the book is actually in the Greek, not the book of Jude, but the book of Judas. And so what's important to understand is that the book, or excuse me, the name Judas in this era of human history, um, there were a lot of people. It was a very common name, right? Uh, in the in the same way that the name Jesus was a common name for a lot of people in that time, Judas was a very common name. But Judas, just like Jesus and and other names, uh, it had a series of nicknames kind of behind it so you could distinguish which Judas was was which Judas. And so some people were were literally called Judas and maybe they were called by their bar name or uh, maybe uh, they were given the nickname Judah is one of the the names, kind of the offshoots from the word uh, Judas. Um, But also it's the word Jude is kind of a nickname for the word Judas. Um, it's like if you have ever known a man by the name of William, okay? He may wanna be called William. He may wanna be called Will, He may want to be called Willie or Bill or Billy. I mean, he could be called any of these names off the offshoot of this one word, William. And that's exactly what we see here with this man, Judas. Now, the question is, well, why would it be translated from Judas to Jude? And that's a very fair question. But I would just simply ask you this. Would you want anything named after you to be named Judas? No. No. When is the last time you ever heard of somebody named Judas, right? We don't name our kids Judas, right? We don't name our pets Judas, okay? We don't name anything Judas because we don't want to be named after the betrayer. And so that's exactly what's happening here in this text. The writer is a man named Judas who goes by the nickname Jude. And the only reason that he does that is because it's like a disassociation. What he's saying, he's saying, yeah, my name's Judas, but I'm not that Judas, Right? I'm not him. I am a different guy. And this is especially important for this Judas because this Judas is actually one of the siblings of our Lord Jesus. And so it's very important that he disassociate from the betrayer to the brother. Okay? Now, what we find in scripture is that Jesus had several siblings, Okay, we know that he had at least two sisters. We don't know their names. Some scholars think they know their names, but but we're not really sure of what their names are. And we know that Jesus had four brothers. Okay, and these brothers are listed in the Gospel of Matthew. The, the brothers' names are this: James, Joseph, Sin, uh, excuse me, Simon, and Judas. Okay? these siblings were literally half brothers of Jesus. So Jesus was born from Mary and the father in heaven. And after his birth, all of his other siblings, all the children that Mary had were birthed from Joseph, their earthly father, right? And so we have this understanding that, that Jesus, it's not just, he's not just an only child. He is a, a house full, right? They're, they have a house full and he has a house full of siblings. Another interesting thing about Jesus' siblings is that most of his siblings, if not all of his siblings, did not even believe he was Messiah before the resurrection, right? We see a couple of times in the gospels where some of the brothers are kind of like, "Uh, Jesus who? You know, they're trying to get away because all of a sudden their brother that they have spent all of their life with all of a sudden he is professing to be the son of God. All of a sudden he's proclaiming that he's Messiah, that he's savior, that he's come to forgive people of their sins. And I want to be fair to them. I'm not sure how I would react if my brother or sister did the same thing. They thought he was nuts. They thought he was out of his mind and they were trying to create distance. But what we learn later is that all of his siblings end up coming to faith in Christ as Messiah following the resurrection. Paul tells us that Christ appeared to James first and then the rest of his siblings. They come to faith in Christ we also find that they were actually uh, at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and in the book of Acts, we find that all of Jesus' siblings were there in the upper room in prayer. And what we learn is that all the siblings become Christian leaders, missionary type people, and teachers for the Christian faith. But when Jude introduces himself, it's interesting that Jude does not introduce himself as the brother of Jesus right? Like that would be the first thing I I would do, right? I'd be like, Jesus, yep, brother, brother, half, okay, but brother, I'm still his brother. Jude doesn't even mention that he is related biologically to Christ at all. As a matter of fact, what he does, he almost downplays it and he says this, he says, I'm the brother of James. Now, this is the same James who wrote the epistle, you know, the book of James, uh, this is the same James, he was uh, the leader at the church of Jerusalem. He's the one that, you know, he he was so committed to the faith that he was thrown off the top of the temple and when he didn't die from that fall, they went to stone him and he didn't die from being stoned so they took a billy club and, you know, just hit him in the head until he died. Uh, this is that same James and this is this is Jude coming to the table trying to write this letter and he's not saying, I'm the brother of Jesus, he says, I'm the brother of James. And the only logical explanation that we can gather from this is that Jude understood the gravity of what he was dealing with. And he felt like to associate himself biologically with the son of God would in some way reduce Jesus's, the perception of Christ as God. And so he doesn't call himself the brother of Jesus, but this is what he calls himself, the servant of Jesus. He calls himself the servant, which in, in interpreted it's, it's indentured, indentured servant, which is like a volunteer servant, someone who is not bound because it is against their will, but they are bound in part with their will. That is how this man identifies himself. This is the author of the book, okay? This is Jesus's half-brother Jude or Judas who is writing the book. He's writing what we can guess, or what we can ultimately assume, I guess, um, he's writing to the Messianic Jews that live in Jerusalem primarily. He's writing to Jews, you know, ultimately it would be all over Israel, but he's writing to people who are of the Jewish heritage that have come to faith in Christ. They, they've seen, either they've seen the resurrected Lord or they have been convicted by the Spirit of God to repent of their sins and to turn to Christ. And, and what we find is that well, part of the reason that we can tell it was primarily written to the Jews, number one, it's some of the language that he uses when he calls them the called of God. There's some, some language technicality there that, that kind of assumes a, a Jewish tone there. But beyond that, when you read the book, you see all of these stories and all of these illustrations. And so many of them are a, they're, they're found in the Hebrew Bible. Right so only Jewish people would understand what Jude was talking about because to the gentile mind none of that stuff would make sense they wouldn't understand who Enoch was they wouldn't understand who the you know the people coming out of Egypt were they wouldn't understand this so it's easy to come to the conclusion that he's writing to the Jewish people, right? And we see this we see this all throughout the Bible. This is why we assume that uh, the Gospel of Matthew was written to the Jewish people. Why? Because Matthew, he writes so much from the Old Testament. He talks about the prophets and the prophecies, uh, the sacrificial system, and anytime that you're reading the New Testament scriptures especially, and you see a lot of Old Testament language woven in and Old Testament illustrations, uh, the book of Hebrews with the sacrificial system, Uh, you can usually come to the conclusion when it includes so much from the Old Testament that it's probably written to Jewish people, like the the first primary audience, because this language would not make sense to the Romans. It wouldn't make sense to the Gentiles. This is why Luke, um, he doesn't, you know, he's writing to Theophilus. He's writing to Gentiles. He talks a little bit about the Old Testament, but it's nothing like Matthew talks. Matthew was just inundated with Old Testament stories and illustrations and ideas. Here in Jude, we find the same thing. He's just pouring out all these illustrations and he's making the assumption, whoever's reading this letter, they understand what I'm talking about. When I say Sodom and Gomorrah, they know exactly what I'm saying. When I talk about the fallen angels, they get it. And so it can be assumed that he's doing that. Now, here's the very important thing I wanna communicate when it comes to not only the book of Jude, okay, for this particular series, but also for any time that we read scripture whatsoever, okay, The book of Jude and all of scripture for that matter had a primary audience in the era of time that it was written. So Jude was written to the church in Jerusalem first. But the book of Jude was also written for the church at Christian Life secondly. Does that make sense? So there is always when we read scripture There's always a primary audience and there's always a secondary audience. In my undergrad, I remember, uh, I'll never forget my um, Old Testament, New Testament. I can't, I say I'll never forget and then I forgot. Either one of my uh, Testament professors, uh, he talked about this idea of what we call a dual prophecy. And basically what he was saying from, he was talking about the book of Ezekiel and he was saying, when Ezekiel is speaking these words of prophecy, it was meaningful for a generation that he's speaking to. It fulfilled a purpose in that generation. But there are some prophecies in the book of Ezekiel that transcend that generation and they come all the way to our generation or maybe even beyond our generation. You understand what I'm saying? And so the book of Jude, though it was meant for certain Jewish context, it also applies to us. The trouble that we have in biblical interpretation is this, is that oftentimes we think that the Bible was first written to us and second written to the Jews. And when we do that, we start jumping all over the place and making application and conclusions that don't need to be there. It's very important for us first to understand who was the author writing to? What was his intent in writing? What was he trying to accomplish? until we understand that we can't understand truly what scripture means for our life and our context does that make sense or did i just say a lot of words and okay okay so it's very important for us to understand that although yes it was written for the church of jerusalem it speaks to us still today if we're not careful we can get into a position where when we read scripture, we automatically believe that everything applies to us, okay? And that, that is very dangerous territory because, um, you know, you start reading in parts of the Old Testament where Solomon has hundreds of wives and, you know, you got guys in Utah that are like, well, Solomon did it. I need some wives too, Right. And they're totally misunderstanding what scripture is trying to communicate, missing missing the fact that for Solomon, it was sinful for him to have 700 wives, okay? And so we have to understand first what the context was of who it was written to and all that kind of stuff before we can understand what it means for us today. Okay, now let's get to the meat and potatoes in these last 26 minutes. The content of Jude is incredibly interesting. There, there are just a few little nuggets that are just kind of interesting, but also a little bizarre, if you will. Um, the book of Jude is only 25 verses, a little over you know, somewhere four to 600 words, depending on uh, translation. But it, it's a small book, but it absolutely is like a shot of testosterone to the church. It's a wake-up call, It's a moment where uh, the people of God are called to stand up, to stiffen their spines. It's a call to action. It's a call to warfare. It's a call to confrontation. And so what's interesting is Jude begins to write his letter. He says, look, in the beginning, I was going to write you guys a letter and I was going to rejoice in our common salvation. You know, we've got in common that Christ is our Lord. I just wanted to rejoice in that. I wanted to celebrate that. But something shifted in me. And I felt an urgency, instead to talk about salvation, I felt an urgency to call you to stand up to resilience. I want you to, um, there to be a type of resurgence of your commitment to the faith. I want you to contend. I want you to stand against what's wrong. I want you to do these things. And what's fascinating, and, and you've had this happen before, Right? You've had it happen where you're in a conversation with someone, or you're going to write somebody an email, or you're gonna text somebody, and all of a sudden you find yourself deleting what you were gonna text and go in a totally different direction. Right? That is that is what we call a redirection of the spirit. That's simply what this is, and we see this beautifully laid out here by Jude. He says, Look, I was coming to talk to you guys about A, but it ends up I need to talk to you about B and thank God that he did because we have the beauty of what Jude is. Um, it's interesting, another little little tidbit about the book of Jude. Um, there are a ton of parallels between the book of Jude and the book of 2 Peter, okay? Okay. Um, As a matter of fact, many of you are familiar with the the great reformer, Martin uh, Luther. Uh, He did the 95 Thesis, incredible uh, man of God, all this stuff. But Martin Luther, he would almost contend with the book of Jude. He did not go as far to say that it shouldn't be in the Bible, but he was a firm believer that it should have been married together with the book of 2 Peter Possibly some people think that that Martin Luther think it maybe should have one should have been thrown out or the other, but at the very least, he contended with it because he was basically saying, look, it's saying the same thing that Second Peter's saying, right? So there is such a deep connection between these two books, but I think it's wisdom for us to take a step back and saying, well, it's saying the same thing, I don't need to read it, it's saying the exact same thing, maybe it should have been thrown out. We need to take a step back and humble ourselves, and we need to say, "Father, if you put this same type of language, the same type of theme, the same type of idea, in Scripture multiple times, maybe it's because you really need us to pay attention to this type of idea." And so uh, it's just kind of interesting a couple of things. Um, you know, we find in the Book of Jude that um, there are several books. Um, that are spiritual writings that he quotes from that are not in the Bible, right? So he talks about uh, writings from the Book of Enoch, which is not found in our Scripture. He he talks about writings from the Testament of Moses, and maybe even another writing that that Moses had done. And I think it's important for us to to understand this, it can be very confusing. Even in Paul's writings, sometimes, um, you will see Paul, when you dig deep enough, you will see Paul quoting secular material, sometimes quoting anti-God material, like mystical. You'll see him quoting some things, in the written scripture, and sometimes it can be very confusing, like, what is, what is going on here? Why, why is Paul using this? Or why, why did Jude choose to do this? But I, again, I would just push back a little bit and say, this is where we have to take a step back and understand there are some things we're never going to understand. But we can also be rest assured that God can use anything to communicate his purposes. And this is exactly what he does in the book of Jude. Now, let me me just add a little disclaimer there. Just because Paul may quote ungodly people or Jude may quote books that are not in our Bible, it does not mean that these books as a whole are valid. Okay? Scripture tells us that every word written in the word of God okay, is what we should pay attention to because they are breathed by God. But if God took a sentence out of this book and put it in his book, we need to pay attention to this one sentence and throw the rest of this book away. Does that make sense? So so just because God will use a book doesn't mean that it validates the entire, it's not the inerrant word of God. Am I making sense? It's in the same way that you can go to the bookstore and buy a Dave Ramsey book that is built on Christian principles, but it doesn't mean that Dave Ramsey is the end all be all of how you deal with finances. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, so um, these things are just a little bit interesting, but, but, but bringing it into focus, ultimately the purpose of Jude's writings is twofold. Number one, what Jude is trying to accomplish is he is trying to expose false teachers. And secondly, he is trying to encourage faithful believers. He's exposing false teachers and he's encouraging faithful believers. And the way that Jude breaks it down in in my grid at least Jude's message is broken down into four different sections I'm going to run through really quickly. Number one is this. Jude tells us as Christian believers, we must relentlessly fight for the faith. Jude is not saying that you must fight to stay saved. That is not what Jude is saying. Jude is saying you need to fight for the Christian faith. You need to fight for the purity of the gospel. You need to stand for the purity of doctrine, that which has been once and for all entrusted to you. That is what you need to fight for. He is not saying that you must fight for your salvation. He's not saying that you must fight to be saved. As a matter of fact, what Jude does... Is he brilliantly writes and he puts at the beginning of his letter and the end of his letter, he uses this language that reminds us, as the sons and daughters of God, in the very beginning, he says, You are kept by God. You are kept. By Christ Jesus, our Lord, you are kept by him. And then in the end, he again reminds us that you are precious in the sight of God. You are kept. So what he's trying to communicate is that, yeah, there's a lot of junk going on in the church, but you are kept because you were the sons and daughters of God. So you've got to go in and get the junk out. And so he brilliantly writes like this. It's a leadership principle we call the sandwich technique, okay? When, when this is a technique I use, okay, so if you ever find yourself in my office or anything like that, you'll, you'll know what I'm doing. We call it the sandwich technique anytime we have to confront someone. And this is basically what it says. The technique says that you go to a person, and we used to use this all the time in youth ministry, all the time in youth ministry, we'd have a student that maybe was was going a little wayward or hanging out with some people that they shouldn't or you know boyfriend girlfriend doing some things that you know they, they need to stay away from and so we called them into the office and set them down and we talked to them and we said listen I, I love you so much and you know god loves you and i care for you i see this in you i see this in you i see this in you and i would i would give them the first part of the sandwich and then i would go into a statement that says but I need you to understand that you are going a wrong direction, right? And I need you, man, what can we do to help correct the ship? What can we do to help you in this moment? Because where you're going or what you're doing or what's going on or whatever the case may be, this needs to be corrected. And once we dealt with that, I would put the other end of the sandwich and say, you know what, I love you so much, right? And so I'd say, it's basically the sandwich tending saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. You're kind of dumb. I love you, I love you, I love you, right? This is exactly what Pete, or this is what Jude does. He says, I love you. You are kept. You're the sons and daughters of God. You're the called ones. You got some issues in the church. Let's figure this out. Oh, you're so precious in the sight of the Lord. Understand what I'm saying? It's a brilliant leadership. It's great for parenting as well. It's not manipulation. I mean, if you don't love them, don't tell them you love them, okay? But I'm just saying, it's a great leadership technique that Jude, before his time, uses in a brilliant, brilliant fashion. And this is what he's trying to communicate. Sons and daughters of God, you're kept, but we are still engaged in spirit wars. There's still darkness at hand. There's sin in the camp, there's false teachers. Sin is alive and well, so I need you to stand up and I need you to fight for the purity of the faith that's been entrusted to you. I need you to confront false teaching. I need you to confront men and women who are in this thing to rob people of their money. I need you to go after people that are sexually promiscuous and abusing people in the house of God. I need you to confront this thing, be the men and women of God that God has called you to be so he says, you got to fight for the faith. Number two, he says this. He says, as Christian believers, you must recognize and reject false teachings. I am going to skip a lot of your notes, but I promise you all, will come back to it next week for the sake of time, okay? But let me just say this very, very quickly. There is a difference between false teaching and immature or undeveloped is probably a better word, and undeveloped teaching. Okay, and let let me clarify here. Um, False teaching oftentimes is for the benefit of that individual, okay? Undeveloped teaching is still for the betterment of the body, it's just not fully matured yet. And I'll give you a great example. When I was, I went into ministry when I was 22 years old, I had very little Bible training at that time, zero experience, okay? And I cringe sometimes at some of the teachings. I, my wife and I, we moved this this last weekend, this whole thing. We're building a house over in the Irmo area. It's going to be amazing. I love it. But right now we're living in an apartment and It's miserable, okay? So we, we moved our house this weekend and we go through all these memorabilia. We've got thousands and thousands of photos. And every time I go to move a box, I'd be like, look at the babies. It's autumn when she was, you know, and I'm looking through all this stuff. And I came across a box that had a, a sermon that I had preached my very first sermon on a Sunday in the year 2000. It was on my 20th birthday. And I preached that sermon. It was on a cassette tape. And I thought to myself, I've got to destroy this. I thought I've got to destroy this because I don't know what I said. And it probably wasn't all the way right. What I did say, I've got to get rid of this, destroy the evidence, right? It, it serves my point to simply say this. It wasn't that I was false teaching. It's that I wasn't fully developed in my teaching. I wasn't fully mature in my understanding of the, uh, theology and doctrine. And so I would simply say this, that, that we have to learn to discern, but we also have to deal differently with false teachers and with undeveloped teachers. With undeveloped teachers, you can be far more gracious and patient and and coaching them into the fullness of, of doctrine and really helping them along. This is what we see Paul doing to Timothy and Titus. We see him constantly just bringing them along in their doctrine. One of the most common things that we see in First in, in and Second Timothy, is Paul reminding Timothy, Timothy, watch your life and watch your doctrine. Watch your wife, not your wife, your life and your doctrine. Life, doctrine. He's constantly helping Timothy to fully mature in that. When we deal with false teachers, these aren't people that can be coached out of what they're teaching. They need to be crushed and cut off from the body, okay? I know that sounds super harsh, okay? And next week, we'll give some parameters on what false teaching truly is and what it isn't. But I'm just saying this, uh, you know, the next time, uh, you know, you're, you're in a youth service or, you know, you, you go to a kid's service and some, you know, eight-year-old kid gets behind the mic and they say something that's not exactly perfectly doctrinal, it doesn't mean they're a false teacher and we need to cast them out of the church, Okay, it means they're underdeveloped. There is a difference between these two things. This is why John the Apostle, this is what he would say. He would say, listen, don't believe every spirit. Don't believe everything that you hear, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because why? Many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so he would tell us, test the spirits, take it before the Lord. Measure it against the scripture, but don't just simply accept everything that you hear. Be wise in your judgment of of teaching. This is a common, common thing all throughout the New Testament. Jesus in Matthew 7, watch out for false prophets. Second Peter, um, you know, watch out for people who secretly introduce destructive heresies. Uh, Second Timothy, you know, just like these people oppose Moses, there are also going to be people that try to oppose the truth. Again and again and again throughout the New Testament, we're warned against false teaching. The men that Jude is talking about, and we're going to get way more into this next week, But the men that Jude are talking about are teaching a doctrine, a false doctrine, that we today would call hyper grace. And the way that Jude says it, he says that they are teaching people because of God's grace, they are telling people that you can live any way that you want, because you're forgiven of your sin. So sexual immorality run running rampant. People are, you know, stealing money. They're doing all kinds of crazy things. And these false teachers are telling them it's fine to do that. And Jude sets back, he says, that's not okay. And so next week, we're going to talk a little bit about the hypergrace movement, which in a nutshell is basically this. The hypergrace movement basically says, if you raise your hand and repeat after me that Jesus is Lord, then you're saved. No repentance required. And that is a false gospel. The true gospel says, yes, you can raise your hand and you can repeat a prayer, but it's gotta come from a disposition of repentance of sin. And it comes from a transformation that the Spirit of God is doing in your life. That is the true gospel. But they were just saying, listen, it doesn't really matter. You you just come hang out with us and live however you want to. And I would just say this, that is a, a very, that's not even a, in my estimation, that's not even a partial biblical teaching. It's just wrong. They are vacating the scriptures that talk about how we need to be keeping with the fruit of repentance and how we work out our salvation with fear and trembling and 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 just on and on and on. All these they're 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 eviscerating these these really important parts of the scripture. And so, as Christian believers, especially today, we we have got to be listen to me, church false teaching today is far more prevalent than you probably even realize. It's, it's, it's more prevalent because this is oftentimes how it happens. It often happens in the context of a church or a person who is teaching a lot of good things. And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, they have really big followings, right? And in the midst of these really good things, all of a sudden they begin to drop these little seeds that go against scripture, even in the slightest, and they take a step back and they let these seeds grow. The reality is that in Western culture, we are so obsessed with being entertained that we will oftentimes endure false teaching just so that we can feel better about ourselves or hear something that we wanna hear. And that's just the truth, I'm, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm, I'm just saying we are, we are a culture that is obsessed with entertainment and we need the spirit of God to revive us, to awaken us and to cut that desire out of us so that we can have the milk and the meat of the word of God so that we can grow into full maturity. That deserved many, many amens. Number three, really quickly, really quickly. Number three, as Christian believers, we must realize that God will judge the wicked. Jude carries with it a very real sense of the judgment of God. Jude goes through six or seven different Old Testament instances where not just God judged people, but where God split the world open, the earth, the planet, he broke it apart and swallowed people. And he rang down hailstones to destroy people. It, it wasn't just the displeasure of God. It was the wrath of God on full display. And listen to me, that makes me very uncomfortable. That makes me extremely uncomfortable because sometimes my human sensitivities do not understand the infinite wisdom of Almighty God. And I just want to encourage you, like sometimes when you read portions of scripture like this, It can feel super intimidating and it can oftentimes feel, and this is the danger, this is the danger, my friends, when it comes to false teaching especially, this is the danger. Where we can read a portion of scripture like that and we can make statements, even if it's internal, we can make statements like this. That doesn't sound like my Jesus. And let me tell you what, that is the first step towards false doctrine. Anytime we read the breathed word of God, and we begin to make statements like that, that is the first step down a long and wrong road. And so I would just say that, that though Jude like carries with it this idea of judgment, we, myself included, have to get to the place where not only are we to some degree comfortable with the judgment of God, but we trust the judgment of God. Listen to me. I know this is incredibly subjective and incredibly debatable, okay? So I'm not here to to argue. But I would suggest to you that Western culture is currently under the judgment of God, okay? And that makes me very uncomfortable, okay? It makes me very uncomfortable. But at a certain point, I have to come to a place where I say, Father, I don't understand, why the innocent are dying. I don't understand that. I don't understand why the innocent are suffering. I don't understand why people who love Jesus with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength are going hungry or or who are jobless or whatever may befall them. Father, I don't understand that. And it feels very uncomfortable to think that we may be under the hand of judgment right now. But I have to come to a place internally where I am assured that God knows exactly what he's doing and that he can be trusted even in the midst of judgment. And I'm telling you, that's not an easy place to get to. It's not an easy place to get to. But just as real as the keeping hand of God that Jude talks about. Again and again and again, he said, man, you were kept by God, you were kept by God, you were kept by God. There's a verse in the book of Jude that reminds us that the angels that rebelled in the beginning, they are kept by God, but they are kept by the judgment of God. The Bible says they are kept by eternal, everlasting chains. And so we have to get comfortable with very uncomfortable things. Man, I could shout all day when you start telling me how kept I am by the love of God. But man, it shakes me when you start talking about angels that are kept by the judgment of God. But at a certain point, I got to put logic aside, I got to put emotion beside I got to come to the throne and say, Father, I don't understand, but my heart is filled with faith because I know you can be trusted. I know, I know that you can be trusted. And we can rest in that trust. Number four and finally is this, is that as Christian believers, we must resolve to finish strong. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says something very similar. He says, listen, Timothy, the last, the last words that we have of Paul, the last written letter that we have from Paul before he's beheaded in Rome, he says this. He says, listen, I'm at the end of my life. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. And I have remained faithful. Right? Now, what's interesting about that is that Paul didn't start well you remember the you remember where we pick up paul's life he wasn't paul he was saul and it wasn't good right but what jude and paul echo in these two portions of scripture is they echo this listen it doesn't matter how you got started it doesn't matter how you started the past doesn't matter sin doesn't matter how you got saved doesn't matter because some of us got saved in weirder ways than others. This is what he's saying. He said, Listen, all that's behind. I count all that as loss. I look ahead to the prize and I want to be faithful and I want to finish strong. This is what Jude calls us to. You're kept, but man, fight to finish strong. You're kept, you're the children of God. Some junk here, let's get rid of it. But you're the Lord's children. And this is the book of Jude. A militant book. A militant book with, with, in the Greek with militant language. And the writer, the half-brother of Christ our Lord, asking the question, not, not will you be a soldier of Christ? If, if you're a part of the family of God, you're a part of the army of God. There's no differentiation, Right? If you're a part of the family, you're a part of the army. He's not even asking, will you be a soldier of Christ? He's saying, will you be a loyal soldier of Christ? Will you contend for what needs to be contended for? Will you stiffen your backbone and speak up when it's necessary to speak up? Will you fight for the purity of the gospel that we have against false teaching? It's an incredible book. I really hope you'll be here next week as we continue on father thank you for the word of the lord tonight i thank you for this incredible book i thank you for your half brother i know that your influence rubbed off on him his entire adolescence whether he wanted to admit it or not in his childhood in his adulthood he would gladly confess that and i thank you lord that we have these treasured words and i pray that though jude was writing for a church ages ago This word still resonates in our souls today, especially today. I pray that you will create in us the children of God, people who are willing to do what's right, to stand for truth, uncorrupted, to stand for the purity of the gospel, for the sake of Christ our Lord. I pray you'll bless your people tonight, in Jesus' name, amen.